Welcome to Episode 3 of Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church and producer of this series. Revisions to this series are part of the AIC's continuing celebration of the start of its second decade on the web. In Episode 3, I start our verse-by-verse discussion of the text of Revelation, beginning with Chapter 1, verses 1 through 13a, which ends with St. John's vision of the one like the Son of Man. If you have not already viewed episode 2, which includes a primer on numerology in Revelation, I urge you to do so, since understanding how John used numerology is critical to understanding this program. We begin episode 3 with verses 1 through 3, in which St. John speaks a prophecy and pronounces a blessing. The graphic for this section is a 17th century painting of John on Patmos by the Italian artist Jacopo Vignali. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. St. Luke admitted that the information in his gospel was learned from others. In Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2, St. John boldly asserts that he received his revelation from Jesus Christ through an angel and that the story he is about to tell, all things that he saw, in verse 2b, concerning things which must shortly take place, is a first-hand account. One of the earliest uncertainties of the early church was the timing of the promised second coming. Such a coming again, as you will hear in later verses, is also called the day of the Lord or the day of God. Among the apostles, including St. Paul in Titus 2, 11-13, and St. Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 4, there was the assumption that the time would be sooner rather than later. In Greek, this expectation is called the parousia, which literally means near. It is similar to the Latin verb from which advari, or Latin verb advari, from which advent is derived. The phrase is translated as coming in the King James Version first published in 1611. John adds to the expectation in verses 1 and 3 when he says he speaks of events which must shortly take place. He also says, for the time is near. A bit of language study would be useful here. There are many Greek words translated in the Western Church as time. In Revelation, the Greek word which John wrote is kairos, which means a specific time when something important will happen. The difficulty for John and for many early Christians was this expectation of immediacy expressed in earthly time. This is, I think, a natural human tendency to put all things in the context of time as we understand time, 
for we live our lives daily in time, measured on a 24-hour-a-day clock. The traditional Christian understanding should be that the coming of judgment and of God's kingdom will be in God's time and not Greenwich Mean Time. The second coming should be understood as being imminent, which means that it could happen at any time and that we should always be prepared for it whenever it happens, whether that is many years in our sense of time or just a few or in the next hour. Also, I want to clarify something else that is often confused in the reading of Revelation. This concerns the hierarchy found in verses 1 and 2. In the first verse, John is speaking of the witness by Jesus Christ of the truth told him by the Father when he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him, meaning Jesus Christ, to show his servants, meaning John. Here he is saying that God the Father is the source of all things that are revealed and that God has made Jesus his agent in this revelation to John, who is the servant of God. This is consistent with the opening 18 verses of John's Gospel in which he explains the origin, nature, and divinity of Jesus. In the book of Revelation, John offers seven blessings or beatitudes, the first of which is found in verse 3. This one is a conditional blessing which applies only to those who read the book, hear the message, and the one who keeps those things which are written in it. The next reading is chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is a greeting from John for his own time, but now for all those who came after. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. When in verse 4 John wrote of the seven spirits who are before the throne, the most likely Old Testament inspiration is Tobit 12, verse 15, in which the archangel Raphael declares himself to be one of the seven holy angels which present the prayers of the saints and which go in and out before the glory of the Holy One. This is the first use of the mystical number seven that I mentioned in the numerology primer in episode two. The illustration is the healing of Tobit, an oil-on-wood panel by Jan Masaz. 
When in verse 5, John describes Jesus Christ as the faithful witness, it is one of only two times in the New King James Version, here and in Revelation 3.14, in reference to the letter to the church at Laodicea, in which the Greek martus or martyros, from which we get the word martyr, is translated as witness. But even here, the meaning is complex. Witness as one who gives evidence or validity to something, in this case meaning the gospel, and as one who dies a martyr. It is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death on the cross as the martyr for the word of God, or firstborn from the dead in verse 5a. John used the same literary device in his own gospel in the description of John the Baptist as a witness in John 1, verses 7 and 15. When St. Paul referred to how we are fortunate to have had a cloud of witnesses from Hebrews 12, verse 1, watching over us, he is using the same Greek word to mean those who died for their faith and which also means those called the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed. This Faithful witness reborn from the dead or firstborn from the dead is called ruler over the kings of the earth. John also refers to Christ making us his followers, kings and priests. John describes himself as a witness in the opening verses of his own gospel. By priest, John does not mean priest in the sacramental sense but figuratively, making the faithful into models for others. In Protestant interpretation, this phrase is often interpreted to mean, quote, the priesthood of all believers. At the end of verse 6, John offers a doxology, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He ends the doxology with amen, but here it may mean something more than the Hebrew, so be it, and more in the modern sense, that is, that there is nothing more to be said. How Jesus will come again is described vividly by John in verse 7 in words which were memorialized in the Advent hymn, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. His descent from the clouds will be seen by all, including those who killed Jesus, those who pierced his side. John warns that all the earth will mourn because of this great day. And he again says, Amen. John then offers in verse 8 something that is very like the words the Father said to Abraham on Mount Sinai in Exodus 3.14. In most discussions on Revelation 1, verse 8, the focus is on the words Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, commonly used in Christian churches on altars and vestments and in stained glass windows, such as the one in the illustration from St. Joseph's Villa Chapel in Richmond, Virginia. The rest of the verse follows an Old Testament style using the phrase, says the Lord. I believe the words were chosen to remind John's readers, 
as John did in John 1, verses 1 to 5, that Jesus as God is the same God who spoke to Abraham, the one who is and who was and who is to come. In the final phrase, he speaks one of the Hebrew names of God, Almighty, which in Greek is Pantocrator, which is surely another reminder to St. John's Hebrew listeners of the Almighty God who spoke to Moses in Exodus 3.14. I think it is significant that nine of the ten New Testament uses of Almighty are found in Revelation suggesting that John's intended contemporary audience, as I noted in episode one, was Jews who had not yet become Christians. It was likely to them that he addressed verse one of his own gospel, in which he declared that Jesus was was the God who existed from the beginning. Our next set of readings is verses nine through twenty, in which John explains how and why he came to write Revelation. These verses exhibit two of the three literary characteristics of Revelation, which I discussed in episode one. The verses are both contemporary and prophetic. I begin with the introduction found in verses 9 through 11. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Azer, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. As I discussed in episode one, John was on Patmos, an island 40 miles off the Turkish coast, where he had been exiled during the reign of the emperor Domitian, who had died a year before the story takes place. It was there that he received his revelation. The illustration of the Aegean Sea is a detail from an 1888 map of the Eastern Mediterranean from a Bible published in that year by the American Bible Society. The location of Patmos on the map is circled. He calls himself a brother and companion in the troubles or tribulation that befell all Christians in the latter half of the first century. That is the meaning of the statement that he was there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was there owing to his advocacy of Christianity at Ephesus. The testimony of Jesus Christ is a literary way of saying he was there defending the received truth of the gospel accounts. He also tells us that the revelation came on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, when he was in the Spirit. This, combined with his reference to lampstands, suggests that he may have been in a church. 
John's vision was likely a mark of the presence of the Holy Spirit. In the Spirit is exactly the same phrase Jesus used to describe King David's state of mind in Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees found in Matthew 22, verse 43. The illustration throughout this sequence, John on Patmos, is a late 15th century oil on an oak panel by Hieronymus Bosch from the collection of the State Museum, Berlin, Germany. John turned and he said, heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Since we believe that John's intended audience was Jews who'd not yet converted to Christianity, this may have been John's allusion to the Jewish understanding of how God announces his presence. On the third day after Moses came down from Mount Sinai, it is written in Exodus 19, verse 16, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains, and the sound of a trumpet was very loud. The voice repeated the words John used in 1.8, identifying itself as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And then the voice spoke a command in which John was told to write the vision in a book or epistle to the seven churches of Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This is the first use of the magical number seven, which I discussed in the primer on numerology in episode two. I'm now going to begin my discussion of the remaining nine verses in chapter 1, which I will treat in three groups, beginning with verses 12 and 13a, in which John describes another vision. The remaining verses are discussed in episode 4. The illustration is a detail from an illumination from the early 11th century manuscript the Bamberg Apocalypse, as it was used on page 21 in the companion AIC bookstore publication, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. In verse 12, when John turned, looking for the voice that spoke to him, he sees seven lampstands, a parallel to the Hebrew menorah, like that described in Exodus 25, 31-37, and Exodus 37, verses 17-24, to and by the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 4, verse 2. This is the second example of St. John's use of the mystical number seven. The presence of the candle stand suggests a church setting. But now he sees something else, one like the Son of Man. And here John shows his knowledge of the Hebrew prophets and also the New Testament scripture. For Daniel wrote in Daniel 7.13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. In the New Testament, Jesus applied the same title, Son of Man, to himself dozens of times, beginning with Matthew 8, verse 20, implying a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in himself. 
St. Stephen, on the door of death from stoning, said in Acts 7.56, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. The illustration, the stoning of Stephen, is an illumination in tempera and gold on parchment from the Benedictional of Ethelwald, produced in the region of Winchester, England, circa 963 to 984, from the collection of the British Library, London, England. Thank you for joining me for Episode 3 in Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. Next time in Episode 4, I will continue the discussion, picking up at the phrase, One Like the Son of Man. Other AIC resources on topics discussed in this episode include from the AIC Bible Study Video Series New Testament Gospels, the several appearances of angels in the Gospel of Luke, are discussed in episode 12 and episode 13. St. John's proofs of the origin, nature, and divinity of Jesus in John 1 are discussed and illustrated in episode 27, and Jesus' use of many phrases referring to concepts of time is the focus of episode 44. From the AIC Bookstore Publications, the same subjects are discussed in two books, The Gospel of Luke, annotated and illustrated in chapters 1 and 2, with the Annunciation illustrated on page 30, and in The Gospel of John, annotated and illustrated in chapters 1, 7, 12, 14, 16, and 18, with John dictating to his scribe Prochorus, illustrated on page 7. In the companion book to this series, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation, presented in 214 pages with 52 illustrations, 51 of them from the 11th century manuscript, the Bamberg Apocalypse, the image of John's vision of one like the Son of Man is found on page 21. In the Acts of the Apostles, annotated and illustrated, the trial and martyrdom of St. Stephen is the subject of chapter 7, including the stoning of St. Stephen illumination on page 59. In the Writing Prophets of the Old Testament, Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days begins on page 45, which features the 17th century icon of Daniel in the lion's den. In Layman's Lexicon, a handbook of scriptural, theological, and liturgical terms, key words of interest are Amen, Almighty, Angels slash Archangels, Beatitudes, Blessing, Doxology, Lord's Day, Martyr, Pantocrator, Tribulation, and Witness. In the St. Chrysostom Hymnal, there are 11 hymns for Advent season, including Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending by Charles Wesley, arranged to the tune Thomas. Based on J.F. Wade's Cantus Diversi, published early in 1741 A.D. Finally, the key to accessing everything produced by the Anglican Internet Church is available at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net, where we've made it easier for you to learn about Christian education, doctrine, worship, and study using your preferred way of learning. 
You can watch our Bible study, Christian education, and seasonal video series using the links on either the digital library or Bible study pages. If you prefer listening, you can listen to the podcast versions of any of our videos using the links on the podcast archive page or to our podcast homilies for all the Sundays in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer using the links on the podcast homilies page. If you prefer written works, you can access any of the 17 AIC bookstore publications, all but one available in both paperback and Kindle editions, using the virtual bookstore link at the bottom of the homepage, or directly using my Amazon Author Central page, https colon right slash right slash www.amazon.com right slash author right slash Ronald hyphen E hyphen Shibley. Everything after dot com must be in lowercase letters. I also invite you to subscribe to my blog page at www Anglican Internet Church, accessible through the Father Ron's blog tab at the top or the bottom of any page on the site. By clicking the Follow Anglican Internet Church legend, you'll be invited to register your email address and receive notice of all new postings. Please be assured that we do not share subscriber information with any other organization, and you can ask for the removal of your address at any time. Until next time, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and make use of its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.